Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Well, if you'll join me, actually, uh, so I don't know if you see up here, it says life is good, especially on a Friday. You might be saying, why does he have that up there? Um, I work as a janitor in evenings uh, to supplement my income, and there's one building that I clean, and in that building, uh, they're back in this one office area, they have this whiteboard, and they always have little statements on there. I guess maybe it's for morale or something. And anyways, Friday I was cleaning, and I saw that, and I thought, Life is good, especially on a Friday. And, you know, some people, that's their, that's their motto, right? Hey, it's Friday, it's party time, and then, then, then weekend rolls around, and then it's Monday. Oh, boy, here goes Monday again. And, you know, I was, I'd love to write on that and make another comment, but I don't want to lose my job, so I don't. But basically, I was thinking, you know, life is good, especially on a Sunday, because, man, you're with the body of believers. You're with the family of Christ. We're here together. We're worshiping the Lord together. We're encouraging one another. There's fellowship. Stick around for fellowship after the service. We have coffee and goodies in the back there. We'd love to just spend time uh, getting to know you and just hanging out. And uh, so, you know, Sundays, man, it's like the highlight of my week. So, Life is good, especially on a Sunday. All right. Hey, Genesis chapter 36 and 37. Um, As you go through uh, these two chapters, uh, chapter 36 traces the uh, rejected lineage of Esau. And uh, it's basically, it's a a bunch of names that I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing. Um, But basically, it's just describing the lineage of Esau. And then there's a thing that I'll mention that it points out to throughout that chapter. Then chapter 37 deals with the chosen lineage of Jacob. So we're going to look at both of those chapters, the the rejected lineage of Esau and the chosen lineage of Jacob. We're going to start with chapter 36, but I just got a word to you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time in chapter 36. So let's begin here. Verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and Aholabamah, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth. So the first two wives of Esau were Canaanite wives. Uh, He married just, you know, the women that are around him. And uh, we find out in the Bible that it was a grief to uh, grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. It just grieved them as parents. Uh, I don't know how many of you as Christian parents maybe have children that are grown and they've, they've made some choices and it's like, oh, it just grieves your mind. You know, it's just like, oh, wish they wouldn't have done that. But, you know, they're adults and they make their decisions. And so uh, I can identify in some cases with Isaac and Rebekah. But anyways, years later, Esau realizes that his parents are not pleased with his Canaanite wives, kind of after the fact. And uh, so he attempts to please them by marrying a third wife. Like, that's going to really help, right? And uh, so he marries a third wife, and uh, it's like, well, she's in the family. Well, it turns out she's a descendant of Ishmael. And Ishmael, you'll know, he's, not, he's, he's the son of the flesh, right? Abraham was the son of the promise. So again, he's just, it's another bad choice. So he's got these three wives. Two of them are Canaanite, one of them's an Ishmaelite. Verse 4. Now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basimath bore Ruel. And Aholabamah bore Jeush, Jaalim, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods, which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country far away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them, Uh, to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And so Mount Seir, where is that? Well, Mount Seir is south and east of the Dead Sea. And I have a map on the screen there, and it's, I got it off the internet, so it's kind of, it's got other stuff. But basically, you'll see the red arrow. The red arrow, and maybe it's like an eye chart for you, but the red arrow points to Hebron, which is where Jacob and uh, uh, Isaac and those guys are at right now, or excuse me, where Jacob's at. And then down below that, you'll see the Uh, kind of a green circle there next to the guy standing on the map. Um, That is Edom. So that's the area generally of Edom. It's a little bit south and a little bit east of uh, the Dead Sea. So that's where, you know, too many flocks, so they separated from each other. 
And then there's this verse there, there's a saying that's, that pops up in chapter 36 over and over and over again, and it is, Esau is Edom. It's reiterated, either it, either it says outright Esau is Edom, or it'll say something along those effects in verses 1, verses 8, verses 9, verses uh, 19, and verse 43. And uh, so, you know, when things are repeated in the Bible, it's significant. And so there's a significance um, as to why we're being told that the Edomites descended from Esau. We'll, we'll get to that when we get to the end of the chapter here. So beginning with verse 9. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, and Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were Teman and Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Gnaz. If you're ever looking for a name for a baby boy, I tell you, this is the book, this is the chapter to look for him. Verse 12, now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, Mizah. These were the sons of Basemah, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion. And she bore to Esau Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. You'll notice in there, there's one person in there in verse 12 named Amalek. He's the father of the Amalekites. The Amalekites would become Israel's enemies. They descended from Esau. And so, you know, as we're going through all these names, it's, it point, they all come from Esau. They're all generated from Esau. Well, the Amalekites, in the days of King Saul, um, God had instructed Saul to wipe out the Amalekites, uh, all of them. Uh, and uh, the reason why he gives them is because when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of, the, out of Egypt and going through the wilderness, and they came through the land of Edom, then the Amalekites ambushed the children of Israel, and there was a battle with them, and that's, that's in the book of Exodus. And so Saul's instructed to wipe out the Amalekites, and Saul does it halfway. He basically disobeys by sparing the life of Agag, the king of the Amalekites. You know, when we disobey God, there's always a consequence. It may not be right away, but there's always a consequence when we're in disobedience to the Lord. And the consequence of Saul's disobedience is that years later, Agag's descendant is a guy by the name of Haman, the Agagite. And Haman, he was like the Hitler of his day. He tried to, he did, tried to do genocide to wipe out the entire Jewish race. That's what the book of Esther is all about. So because of Saul's disobedience, the, the Malachites, they continued and they were continually a thorn in, in Israel's side and they were enemies for many, many years. Verse 15, these were the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, <clears throat> the firstborn son of Esau, were chief Teman, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Kenaz, chief Korah, chief Gatam, and chief Amalek. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. They were the sons of Ada. By the way, in your, if you have a King James Version, I'm reading out of the New King James, but in the King James Version, it calls them dukes. So those were the dukes, Duke Korah, Duke J, uh, Gatan, Duke Elif, uh, Amalek, and so on and so forth. Verse 17. These were the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, Chief Mizah. These were the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. And these were the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife, Chief Jeish, Chief Jalem, and Chief Korah. These were the chiefs who descended from Aholabama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah. These were the sons of Esau, who was Edom, and these were their chiefs. So you got to have a question here. we got the Dukes of Edom. I, I know my Bible says chiefs, but they're the Dukes of Edom. And it's like, why? what's the title? What's the title for? What's the purpose for the title? Well, listen, titles equals importance, right? I mean, don't you like to have a title, you know? Um, I remember when I first started pastoring, we had a just small Bible study, and, and uh, there was a guy from... Uh, from American Samoa that was here. He worked for the Department of Agriculture, and they sent him from American Samoa to come to Minnesota to learn how farmers farm in Minnesota. So he was here for a while. He attended a Calvary Chapel on uh, 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 American Samoa. And it was really funny because, uh, 
you know, we were we got to be we became friends, and we were talking. And one time, he go he called me pastor, and I said, I said, man, don't call me pastor, man, just call me Don. And he rebuked me. He's like, no, you're doing the work of a pastor. I mean, this is a Bible study, right? We had like I don't know, maybe a dozen people at the most sitting in a house. And he's like, no, you're you're doing the work of a pastor. You're a pastor. And at that point, it's like, oh wow, I, I guess you know, I still was kind of uncomfortable with the title. But there are people that are not uncomfortable with titles, right? They love to have titles because titles make them feel important. And so it's like, where do these titles, chief this, chief that, or duke this, duke that, where do they come from? Well, the issue is pride, right? That's their issue is pride. Obadiah is a prophet who wrote, it's a one-chapter book of prophecy in the Old Testament, and it all deals with the land of Edom. It's God's prophecy against Edom. I'm going to read a few verses out of Obadiah chapter 1. It says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise, and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your, uh, your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. They, they had pride. The Bible tells us in James chapter 4, verse 6, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 20. These were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lotan were Hori and Heman. Lotan's sister was Timnah. These were the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Oman, Onam. These were the sons of Zibion, both Aja and Anna. This was the Anna who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured, pastured the donkeys of his father Zibion. So like, you know, you're reading this and go, oh, oh, that Anna. I didn't know who that is. Oh, it's the Anna that found, you know, he found the water in the wilderness. Oh, that's the guy. Now I remember him. You know, what's funny about that is it's probably... The writer or the readers of this book, when it was written, they probably like, oh yeah, I know who he's talking about. But for you and I, it's like, huh? Who's that guy? Listen, the memory, the proverb says this: the memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. I got a question for you: a hundred years from now, where are you going to be? Hundred years from now. You know, I, I like walking. We've got a cemetery just up the road here, and I, I did it once. We were kind of doing a shortcut through the cemetery. We were taking a walk through the neighborhood, and then we got to the end and realized the other gate was closed. It was like, ah, we, we got out of the cemetery. But um, I, I kind of, I don't know what it is. Maybe I'm morbid. I kind of like looking in the cemetery, looking at those tombstones and looking at the dates. There's some really old ones over there. And, you know, it amazes me. It never fails to amaze me. Sometimes I see some great big, tombstones like the one on the picture there huge and, and you look at it and you go wow somebody really either the person themselves you know they planned ahead of time and they purchased it and they wanted to be memorialized and or maybe their loved ones you know they just they were such a great person they really want to memorialize them and then we go by decades later or years later you know and we go well who is this guy i don't even know who this person is a hundred years from now where are you going to be think about that What's going to matter to you 100 years from now? Right now, things matter to me, but is it going to matter 100 years from now? kind of gives you a perspective. Listen, what's going to matter 100 years from now is there's only two things, really. First of all, did you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ here on earth in this life? That's the very first thing. In fact, it's the most important thing that's going to matter 100 years from now. And if you do have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, here's the next thing that's going to matter 100 years from now. What did you do with the time, the talent, and the treasures that the Lord's given you. What have you done with it? But let's continue here. Verse 25. These were the children of Zibion, or excuse me, these were the children of Ana, Dishon and Holabama, the daughter of Ana. These were the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Sharan. And these were the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zaphan, and Achan. 
These were the sons of Deshan, Uz, and Aran. These were the chiefs of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibian, Chief Ana, Chief Dishan, and those other chiefs. Uh, these were the chiefs of the Horites, according to their chiefs in the land of Seir. Verse uh, 31. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. And we're going to go through a list of the kings here. These were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Do you remember God always wanted to be the leader of Israel? In fact, the name Israel, you know, led by God, ruled by God. And God wanted the children of Israel just to look to him for their protection, for their guidance, for their, for their provisions, everything. Just look to the Lord. And uh, they started looking around at the nations around them. Well, guess which nations they looked at? It was the nations of the Edomites. And those guys all had kings. They all had chiefs and dukes and stuff. And it's like, man, we want a king just like that. And so that's where that came from. Verse 32. So here's the list of the names here. And when Bela died... Uh, excuse me, Bela, the son of Beor, verse 32, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinheba. And when Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. And when Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Avith. When Hadad died, Samlah of Masrachah reigned in his place. And when Samla died, Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. When Saul died, Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. And when Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, Hadar uh, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Pau. His, na- his wife's name was Mehetabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mahazah, whatever, Mahazah, yeah, whatever that name is. <laughs> and these were the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their families and their places, by their names, Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jetheth, Chief Aholabama, Chief Elah, Chief Penan, Chief Kenaz, Chief Teman, Chief Miz- Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, and Chief Iram. These were the chiefs of Edom, according to their dwelling places, in the land of their possession. Esau was the father of the Edomites. So again, all those nations, all those enemies of Israel, they descended from Esau. Remember, Esau is the man who was led by his flesh. <clears throat> so now uh, we get to, well, actually, uh, yeah, let's, let's move on here. By the way, there's one Edomite that's in the Bible that I don't know if you're aware of it, but later on um, we'll find out that, uh, you know, the Idumea was a, was a, a, a kingdom at the time of Jesus Christ, when Jesus Christ was uh, crucified, there was the Edomites, or the Idumeans, and those are the Edomites. And there was a famous Edomite uh, in that time, and his name was Herod the Great. And uh, Herod, of course, you remember, he's the one that slaughtered all the male children in Bethlehem because he didn't want any competition. You know, he heard there was a Messiah of Israel coming, so he had all the male children from two years old and younger slaughtered. He was an Edomite. Again, it's just they, they, but that's the last we hear of the Edomites was the, the Herods that rule, uh, ruled over uh, Idumea. Well, let's get to chapter 37. We'll look at the chosen line of Jacob, the chosen lineage of, of Jacob. You know, Paul in Romans 13, he quotes from the prophet Malachi and he says this, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And, you know, that's a very difficult passage, isn't it? Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. It's like, how can God say that? And, you know, I totally agree with you. I mean, uh, I can understand God hating Esau, but how could he love Jacob? I mean, it's, if you think about it. You know, Esau himself, the person, he totally despised the things of the Lord, right? He intermarried Canaanite wives. He didn't care about the blessings of the firstborn. Um, his descendants became nations that hated Israel, and uh, they were mercilessly cruel to the Israelites throughout their history. So I can kind of understand God hating Israel, Esau, although I don't think God hates the way we hate, you know, in the same sense. But the sons of Jacob, when we start looking at their lives... Man, I tell you, they were in many ways just as wicked as the children of Esau, as the sons of Esau. And so the real question isn't, you know, how could God hate Esau? But man, how could God love Jacob and his family? Because as we get into chapter 37, the actions of the sons of Jacob in chapter 37, they're cruel 
And they're going to haunt them and Jacob for many, many years. And as we start moving into the rest of the book of Genesis here, um, starting with chapter 37, Jacob, he's mentioned in the next going on, you know, the chapters, but he's going to figure less prominently in the rest of the book of Genesis. His son Joseph is going to figure prominently in the rest of the book of Genesis. In fact, there's 14 more chapters in the book of Genesis. 13 of them all deal with, mainly with Joseph. Why is it so important? Why is Joseph such a main figure in the book of Genesis? The reason why is because Joseph is a type or a picture of Jesus Christ. Listen, if Jesus Jesus Christ's mission is like God's finished masterpiece, then the life of Joseph is God's rough sketch of that masterpiece. It's like, you know, it's not like a perfect representation, but it's like, an, it's like a rough sketch. It kind of gives you an idea. And then finally, when Jesus is alive, he's the master. You know, he's, he fulfills it completely. But as we go through, not only in the book of Genesis, but all through the Old Testament, we'll see glimpses and, and hints and pictures of, of Jesus and what his, his work on the cross and that he did for us. And I'll be pointing out those similarities as we go through it. So, verse 1 of chapter 37 Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So who were those sons? Well, um, the sons of Bilhah were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah were Gad and Asher. And, you know, Joseph's, they're older brothers. Joseph's the second to the youngest, right? Benjamin's the only younger one, and who knows how old he is at this point. He's just a youngster. Joseph's 17. And so Joseph, he's out there with his brothers, tending his father's sheep, and for whatever reason, they're doing something wrong, okay? They're, maybe they're slacking, or maybe they're, they're, they're not protecting them, or whatever they're doing, Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father, and as we go through the life of Joseph, we're going to see something about him. Joseph, he's got, there's just something in his character, right? He cares, in this case, he cares more about his father's flocks and his father's reputation than his brother's opinions. He's not one who's susceptible to peer pressure. Verse 3, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. So it tells us that Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, and it says because he was the son of his old age. And I think it's also because he was the firstborn of his beloved Rachel. Remember, he loved Rachel. That was the wife that he chose in the first place. And Joseph is the firstborn of, of Rachel. Joseph, you know, like I mentioned, he's got this character that we're going to see as, we, as his life and his, 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 uh, you know, his life is developed in the scriptures here. But he's like one of these kids. You run into him every once in a while, you occasionally run into them in families. They're so different from the rest of their family. You know, the rest of their family might be crooks and liars and cheats and stuff. And then you have this one kid that's just, it's just a sweet kid, a good kid. Joseph's like one of these. The rest of his brothers, man, they're scoundrels. His father was a manipulator. Of course, God got a hold of him and changed him. But, but that family, there's, 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 we, there's not a lot of good stuff we see in their family. And so Joseph stands out. He's a sharp contrast to them. Think about it. He was probably a compliant child. And parents love compliant children. Children that are strong-willed and they don't, they don't listen. Man, that's, it's a struggle, right? It's a struggle. Your parents know that. He's certainly more honest than the others. He's faithful and he's diligent. And we'll see that in, in subsequent chapters. We'll also see something else that's interesting about him. He doesn't carry a grudge. That's a big thing. He doesn't carry a grudge. And we could go on and on and on. Well, anyways, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. And I got a word to say about that. That's not a good thing, okay? It's not a good thing when one family member is clearly loved more than all the rest and it becomes obvious to everyone around it. Listen, Jacob should have known better, right? You know, when he grew up, the Bible tells us that Isaac, his father, loved Esau more than him. And so you can imagine if you ever, if you guys, maybe, maybe one of you or maybe a lot of you have grown up in that kind of situation, you probably know what Jacob feels like. You know, that, that feeling to, 
you know, the, that yearning to get your father's or your mother's love, that acceptance, and you never quite receive it. And so Jacob understood that, and yet here he's repeating the same thing with his children. It says Joseph was the beloved son of Israel, Israel being Jacob, right? When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Again, the picture is starting to be painted. Well, at the end of verse 3, it says that he also made him a tunic of many colors. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, we have this picture in our mind of this, you know, these striped robes and all that. And, and it, the translation probably is more accurately described as being a long sleeve robe. And it was probably white linen with a colored stripe. It was something that nobility or somebody in authority would wear. You know, if you were a worker, you'd be wearing a tunic that was short-sleeved. Maybe it was shorter. It wouldn't be white linen because if you were a worker, you, you know, it'd be stained. It would look terrible after the first day. So it was probably, you know, his tunic, long sleeve, white. I mean, it would just it just stood out, right? Well, we'll get to verse four. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Can you imagine being the one brother and all your other brothers and they're all older than you and your sisters, everybody hates you. Nobody says a kind word to you. That's what Joseph's life was like. He was hated by his brothers. Listen, Jesus was beloved by his father and he was hated by his brothers, the Jews also. Verse five. Now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers And they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf rose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more. You know, his brothers, they understood what the dream meant. They understood. They're like, are you going to reign over us? You indeed are going to reign us? Are you indeed going to have dominion? They knew what the, the interpretation of the, of the dream was. And so it added fuel to the fire of their hatred. I mean, it just made it things worse. It's like, Joseph, you should have just kept that dream to yourself. Well, verse 9, then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come down to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. I mean, even Jacob, even Israel rebukes him for his dream. Again, Jacob understood the meaning of the dream. He understood that the sun represented him and that the moon represented Rachel. He understood that the 11 stars represented the children of Israel. This is important because when we get to Revelation chapter 12 next week, no, we won't get there yet, but when we get to Revelation chapter 12, there's a prophecy, there's a vision that John has of the sun, moon, and the stars and 12 and 11 stars. Uh, 12 stars, I think it is, 11 stars. But it's depicting the nation of Israel. And so it's important. We'll see that as we get into uh, Revelation. Well, again, his brothers envied him. You know, Jesus was envied too. In fact, in John, records this in his gospel, John chapter 12, it says, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you're accomplishing nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. You know, they're the guys that like the titles, right? They're the guys that liked to get the greetings in the marketplaces and they like the best seats in the synagogue and all those places. And now all those people that were once looking up to them, they're flocking to Jesus. And it's driving them nuts. Their envy was so obvious, even an outsider like Pilate saw it. When Jesus was arrested and brought before Pilate, it says, Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Christ? For he knew that they handed him over because of envy. I mean, it was so obvious that even Pilate recognized, Hey, man, these guys really envy Jesus. You know, envy is very destructive 
in the heart of a person. If you are prone to envy, or maybe you're dealing with envy in your heart this morning, I don't envy you. (laughs) Envy is so destructive. Paul writes in Galatians 5, says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. What is envy? This is what it is. It's pain felt and malignity conceived at the sight of excellence or happiness. It's closely associated with jealousy. Listen, if you're envious, it pains you to see someone excel more than you do. It causes pain. It causes consternation. You start, if he continues, you start wishing something evil would befall them because you hate the fact that they're being blessed or their things are going good in their lives. Why is it right next to murder? Well, because in God's eyes, there's, there's a similar intent. Listen, if envy, it starts in our minds, okay? But if you leave it unchecked, it'll develop, it'll, it'll degenerate into hatred for whoever you're envious about. It'll, it'll, uh, it'll, it'll move, it'll progress if left unchecked into hatred. Jesus said, hatred is the intent for murder. Hatred in your heart, it's, it's just like you're murdering somebody. So hatred, when it is left totally unchecked, it can lead to the physical act of murder if there's the right, given the right set of circumstances. It can happen. Listen, envy affects us so strongly It overshadows and it eclipses. We just had an eclipse this week, right? It eclipses thankfulness in a person's heart. When you're envious, it's hard to be thankful because, oh, I can't believe they're getting all that stuff and look at me. And then pretty soon, we're no longer thankful. It robs us of our joy because all we think about is that person or that man, I can't believe it, you know? And then as a result of that, it causes us to resent God. God, what, what am I doing wrong? Why is that person being blessed and I'm not? And so we can end up resenting God. And as a result of that, it will greatly hinder our fellowship with him. Listen, if unchecked, it will cause your heart to grow cold. And it will make you spiritually unfruitful. And believe it or not, it can even cause physical effects in your body. Man, you can get heartburn, you know, sleepless nights, stress, all that. Because you're envying somebody. And guess what? It all starts in our minds. It starts in our thoughts. That's why it's so important to bring every thought into captivity, into the obedience of Christ. It's so important. You start feeling that coming up, man. You've got you to gotta lay it at the cross. You've got to you, confess it. I mean, I, you know, let's admit it. We get envious sometimes, right? I get pastor envy. <laughs> I can't believe they got, you know, they got the jet plane. No, I don't envy that. But, you know, oh, they got 200 people in their church. I can't believe it. You know, it's easy to, it's easy to happen in our hearts. So when that happens, man, you've got you to gotta deal with it right then and there. You've got you to gotta bring those thoughts into captivity because if not, it's going to mess you up. Verse 12. Then his brothers went to feed them. Excuse me. Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to them, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. If you'll recall the last time we read about Jacob and his family in Shechem, Dinah, his sister, was raped by the prince of Shechem. His name was Shechem. Simeon and Levi murdered all the men of Shechem as a result. They, they, they wanted vengeance. And, uh, and so now it's like Jacob's there in Hebron. His sons have gone, and he hears, hey, they're up in Shechem. And he's probably like, oh, I can't, why are they there of all places? And he hasn't heard from them. He's concerned, man, of all places. Why would they go to Shechem? And so Joseph is there with his father there in Hebron. And so Joseph says, or Jacob says, Joseph, I want you to go find out how they're doing. Go up there, check them out, see how they're doing. 
So G- Joseph is sent by his fathers to go to his brothers. And Jesus was sent by his father to go to his brothers, right? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. You know, what's interesting. Hebron, the name means association. We might even say fellowship. Joseph was in Hebron. He was in fellowship with his father. And he willingly leaves that place of fellowship to do his father's will to go to his brothers. Do you see a picture being painted there? Jesus left his place of fellowship with his father in heaven. And he went to earth to do his father's will to go to his brothers, the Jews. Now, there's another aspect of this. You know, I said envy can bring resentment. You know, you end up resenting God. Well, I can imagine that Joseph's brothers resented Jacob. It happens, right? Their dad goes again, favoring that jerk, you know? I can't believe it and stuff. And so, you know, after a while, they start losing their respect for their father. And from the other sons of Israel's perspective, they have left Hebron. They've left fellowship with their father and they're trying to go as far away from him as possible and so they go to Shechem you know of all places verse 15 now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field and the man asked him saying what are you seeking you know I love it in the bible whenever it says a certain man or you know a certain thing happened you know when you read it it sounds like well that's really a coincidence Joseph's up there looking for his brothers and he's out in a field and there's a man says hey what are you looking for you know and we'll find out that he doesn't even have to give him a description the guy gives him an answer whenever you read about something like a certain man it sounds like a coincidence on the surface but you know what it's a divine appointment in reality Maybe it was an angel. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us, but it's possible. So anyways, Joseph's there in Shechem. This certain man walks up and says, hey, what are you seeking? Verse 16. So he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they, they have departed from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Um, Dothan <clears throat> was about... 12 miles north of Shechem, and it was known for its pasture land. Verse 18, now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit, and we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams." You know, he probably stands out. They're, they're sitting there. Maybe they're, they're sitting down. You know, the, the sheep are, you know, they're eating the grass. And it's, so it's, you know, they're just out in a flat area. They look off in the distance and, oh boy, there comes that guy, Joseph, in his fancy schmancy white robe. I mean, he stands out there. You can see him right out there. He's coming. Look, here comes this dreamer. And they go, man, let's just kill that guy. Be done with him. Throw his body in a pit. Verse 21, but Reuben heard it. And he delivered him out of their hands and said, Let us not kill him. But Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty, there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. Boy, I tell you, you know, Reuben, he hears this plan. These brothers are all, let's kill him, let's throw him into a pit. And he wants to rescue Joseph. And it's probably not because he cares that much about Joseph. He's probably just as resentful. But man, he knows, man, this is going to kill dad. I mean, it's going to give, he's dead, you know, in the last couple chapters, Jacob has has dealt with a lot of death, a lot of death in the last couple chapters. And so, you know, Reuben's like, man, I'm going to rescue him. So he has this half-hearted plan. You know, why didn't he just take, he was the firstborn, the oldest, why didn't he just stand and say, you're not going to do this and and be done with it, right? And take Joseph and bring him back to his dad. He's got this half-hearted plan to rescue Joseph and his brothers buy it. So then when Joseph gets there, man, they strip off that tunic. Man, they can't wait to get it off him. And they throw him into that pit. And then they sit down to eat a meal. You know, committing treachery is hard work, you know. Uh, It just shows 
the level of the hatred and the callousness of their hearts as you read this. You know, in John 1.11, speaking about Jesus, it says, He came to his own, and his own, his, <clears throat> his own did not receive him. Right? Remember when Jesus, they put a purple robe on him, they, they beat him, and, and you know, he's, he's, he's been whipped. I mean, the, the, the flesh, the torn flesh, the raw flesh, just sticking to that robe, and the blood's probably coagulated, and it's probably dry. And they rip that robe, purple robe off of him that he was wearing, and then they crucify him. And of course, then he died, and he was cast into the pit of the earth, right? He was put into a grave. So we see again, there's a painting being pictured here. Verse 26. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, and let us seal, uh, sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. You know, if we saw it last week, Reuben, the firstborn, he would have received the blessing of the firstborn, right? But he disqualified himself from the blessing of the firstborn when he slept with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi were the next in line, the next oldest. They would have been the next ones, one of them, Simeon or Levi, whoever was born first, they would have been the next two in line to receive the blessing of the firstborn. And they each disqualified themselves from the blessing by murdering the men of Shechem. Guess who's the next oldest? It's Judah. And so he would have been the next one in line. But you know what? It looks like Joseph's kind of the favored son. It looks like Joseph's going to probably end up with the blessing of the firstborn. He will, in fact. But at this point... So it makes perfect sense that Judah would be the one like, man, let's get rid of this guy. So he comes up with that plan. And so it makes sense that it is Judah who comes up with a plan to do away with Joseph. And you know what? Hey, you get a little cash on the side too, right? Verse 28. Then Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Then Joseph returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was, excuse me, then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and, and I, where shall I go? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a, goat of the, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Then Joseph, uh, then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So they bartered with the Midianite traders. They bartered for their brother to sell him as a slave. And, you know, maybe they started out at 100 pieces of silver. And, the, you know, the Midianites are, man, 100, we'll give you five. You know, well, five. You know, how about 70? No, no, I'll give you 10. You know, and they, they, they whittle it down. Finally, they get down to 20 pieces of silver. Okay, deal. So they sold their brother for 20 pieces of silver. And in those days, that was the price of a slave, 20 pieces of silver. Jesus was sold into the hands of his enemies for 30 pieces of silver. I don't know if that's inflation, but that was the price of a slave in his day. And so the traders, you know, if you think about it, they're up north. The, 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 they're up north there in Dothan, and they're, now they're going to head down to Egypt. So they're going to be going back south. Joseph came from the south going north. Alfred Eidersheim in his, in his book says, Joseph probably could see the mountains of Hebron on their way south from that trade route. That was a normal trade route that the traders went on. And so as he's walking, he's there, he's a prisoner. Who knows if those guys speak Hebrew or nothing, but he's there and he's going down there, stripped and naked, just walking down there. And he probably can see the foothills. Man, my dad's camp. They're just on the other side of those hills. If I could just get word to him. And he can't, because he's a prisoner. Well, meanwhile, his brothers, it says they took a kid of the goats. And that's significant. They took a kid of the goats, 
they kill it. They dip Joseph's robe in the blood. Then they take it to their father. And listen to the callousness. Hey, we found this robe. Do you know whether this is your son's tunic or not? You know, Joseph was deceived. Excuse me, Jacob was deceived by his sons with the kid of the goats. In the same way, Rebekah and Jacob, Jacob himself, they took a kid of the goats. They killed it and used it to deceive Isaac. And now Jacob is being deceived by his sons. You know, Paul writes in Galatians 6, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And it's coming back to him in spades. So going back to the story, Jacob recognizes Joseph's tunic. I mean, it's, it's obvious. He buys their deception. In verse 45, it says, Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son for many days. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So he got 20 pieces of silver. There were 10 brothers, right? So let's do the math. They each got two pieces of silver. That's not a whole lot of that's not a whole lot of money. That's a cheap payment to receive for a lifetime of guilt. You see, they carried that guilt of betraying their, their, their brother for many, many years. How many people, for a moment of cheap satisfaction, reap a lifetime of guilt and shame? It happens. It happens all too often. How many years had passed for Joseph's brothers? You know, and, and, and it says that, that Jacob refused to be comforted. Some people... You know, we never get over the death of a loved one, okay? You, you never get over it. But sometimes you kind of start, you just kind of, you start living your life, okay? You just, you continue on. But some people, they, they, they never get past that. And I, I get this picture in mind that Jacob's one of these guys. He just never got past it. And so year in and year out, maybe every year on, on Joseph's birthday or, or some celebration, you know, there's Jacob weeping or just, you know, and they know it. And they see it, and they're like, man, we caused that. That guilt and that shame, year in and year out. How do I know that the guilt's there? Because many years pass for Joseph's brothers, and we'll get to it in another chapter. Later on, they're going to see their brother, and he's no longer a 17-year-old man. He's a 17-year-old young, young man. He's a grown man. And he's the second in charge of, Israel, of Egypt. They don't know that, of course. They don't know who they're talking to, but it's Joseph. And we read in chapter 20, uh, 42, that's where it happens. They're now standing before the second highest ruler of the nation of Egypt. And he's treating them harshly. And they start talking to each other in Hebrew. And Joseph knows Hebrew. He hears what they're saying. And it says there in Genesis forty-two twenty-one. Then they said to one another, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us. And we would not hear Therefore, this distress has come upon us. That gives us even a a, a clearer picture of what happened. You know, Joseph, he's coming to his brothers. Man, they're family. He's just checking on them. And they treat him. Who knows if they beat him at the same time, but they strip off his robe. They throw him in a pit and sell him. And, And he's in there in the pit. And they're just sitting on the other side having sandwiches or falafels or something. And, 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 and he's crying out, brothers, what are you doing? Please don't. Please don't. And they're just ignoring it. They could care less. That's how much hatred is in their hearts. That's when envy gets to that point, you don't care anymore. And so they've been carrying this guilt all these years, and it's obvious, even now, as, as older men and, and their brother's now a grown man, it's just like it was yesterday. Man, we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us and we wouldn't listen to him. Maybe you're here this morning and you're carrying a burden of guilt this morning. Maybe you've carried it for many years. I've got good news for you. This, isn't a, this is kind of a bummer right here, but this is, I've got good news for you. The Lord says in Isaiah 1.18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They, they are, though they are red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. 
In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And God can clean your conscience when you come to him, when you confess that thing, you know, you don't have to keep carrying that guilt and that shame. You can be washed clean this morning. A little further on in chapter 10 of Hebrews, it says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Man, we just, let's draw near to the Lord because he's ready to forgive, he's ready to wash us, and he's ready to allow us to move on. Now, I know some believers, they have a relationship with Jesus Christ. They've been forgiven, but they still carry that guilt of whatever it was or that shame, and they, and they hang on to it. And the good news is you don't have to hang on to it. You're, you're not meant to hang on to it. Jesus, it was pinned on him on the cross. And so this morning at the end of our service, we're going to give you an opportunity to pray. And if you want to pray and just draw near to the Lord, we're going to give you that opportunity this morning. Verse 36 We'll finish the chapter. It says, Now the Midianites had sold him in, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. Next week, we're going to look at chapter 38 and chapter 39 if you want to read ahead. 38 is the one chapter that doesn't deal with, with Joseph, but we're going to see, we're going to look at that in light of the next chapter, and we'll discuss that next week. Can I have the worship team <laughs> duo <laughs> come on up this morning? <laughs> Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we've dealt with some subjects this morning that I know that, boy, being a human, Lord, we deal with these things. Lord, sometimes we are envious of others. And sometimes we hang on to that envy, Lord, and it's, it, it affects us. And it affects our relationship with the person we're envious of. And it also affects our relationship with you. And Lord, sometimes some of us may be carrying a load of guilt. We've never confessed it to you. Maybe this is the morning we need to just get it off. We need to confess it to you and be done with it. Or maybe we have turned to you and, and, and you are the Lord of our lives, but Lord, we're still carrying that guilt that we don't need to carry anymore. And so Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to, 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 deal, to deal with that this morning. So I thank you for your message this morning. We ask your blessing upon the worship time now in Jesus' name. Amen.